It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hello again, everyone. We're back at it. And this week, it's a visit from David Woodburn. David runs Barnsley Motorworks. That's a motorcycle repair shop in Roopville, Georgia. It's kind of midway between Birmingham and Atlanta here in the United States. David has traveled the world on an airhead along with his wife and daughter. He's written a book about those journeys, which we'll discuss this week. Barnsley Motorworks is also a full-service motorcycle repair shop. They host traveling motorcyclists and world travelers which is part of David's ethos, as you'll learn later today. A link with information on how to contact David, how to order the book, will be in the About section of this podcast. All right, big news. As promised, the website is up. Airhead247.com is the address. want to say thank you to Nick Malozzi from Airhead Misfits for building the site. And be sure to check out his Airhead Misfits Instagram page, Nick, great job on the site, buddy. Good work. So about the webpage, we've got Survivor Series stories and photos. And right now, those are really just a few of the motorcycles I own. But we'll be expanding that to include a number of listener submissions we already have. And if you've got a Survivor bike you'd like to be featured, send us an email. You'll also find links to past episodes. And of course, we've got some stuff for sale. So please consider supporting our efforts here with the purchase of a t-shirt or decal. Uh, I now have a new appreciation for small business owners. After building this site and getting stuff listed for sale, the margins on making a dollar are very slim. So many fees and the shipping costs. Oy vey, it's ridiculous. I'll just leave it there for now. Anyway, shirts and decals, check them out. I think we've got some unique and useful designs you'll enjoy. Also, we've got some parts. Now, I'm not a used parts seller per se. This isn't a huge list, but we have a few pages to look over. Some NOS and NLA parts. Again, we've priced these, so we might make a dollar or two to put back into the program here. Nick is also working on a searchable BMW service bulletin index. That's a big task. This is a big three-ring binder full of service bulletins going back to the early 70s, so stay tuned. We're going to have that up and running soon, and I think this is something everyone's going to find useful. Last thing about the website, we'll be adding new content every couple weeks or so, so when a new program hits, be sure to check out the website for some additional content. All that to say, have a look, poke around the site, let us know what you think. We've got a full show with David this week, so William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve, he'll be back with us next time. However, I do want to mention William and the crew at Boxer 2 Valve have a new video series on the way, which has been a long time coming. Now, I've not visited with William about this yet, 
but I'm excited to see what they've got in store. They put a teaser YouTube video up here recently, and so you can check that out if you want to see what they've got in store. Also, a reminder to subscribe to their YouTube channel so you can keep up with those videos when they come out. And Boxer2Valve.com, they've got downloadable purchase options for all their previous video series. Those covers uh, Slash 6 and uh, R80 Mono, uh, among other things. And those are great how-to and reference videos. So be sure to check that out at Boxer2Valve.com. You'll notice a few digital signal lapses, that's what I'm going to call it, during our phone conversation. It sounds a little funny. It's not on your end, and it only happened a few short times, so I did not edit it. We just left it as is. So just a heads up on that. So with that, we're off for a full hour plus with David Woodburn from Barnsley Motorworks on the Airhead 247 podcast. All right, we're on the line with David Woodburn. And David, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. We'll talk about your book uh, a little later on in our conversation, This Big Pella Walkabout. Uh, but I want to get started just with a, a real basic question here. What bikes do you currently own, airhead or not? What do you got in the garage? What are you riding and, and wrenching on these days that are your own? Oh, mate, that's... <laughs> That's uh, you rubbing my nose in it. <laughs> right out of the gate, huh? Yeah, I took some people in the warehouse last night, and they said, "Are these your your bikes?" And I went, "Yeah, unfortunately, they are." Uh, we've got uh, 69s. We've got a couple of R60 slash twos. We've got R27. We've got uh, GS R80 GS. We've got oh 90s. We got a mob of bikes. We got some BSAs and Triumphs, and uh, but they're all bikes. We they're all bikes that uh, were projects or basket cases. We just slowly built them over the years, and I just haven't bothered to sell them. So I've got too many bikes, mate. Um, yeah, unfortunately. What, what what's a daily driver for you? So let's say you're going into town and you want to take a ride or go somewhere. What are you hopping on? Oh, uh, we got a R100 with a sidecar. Oh, we got a. Well, the bike we bob around on here is actually a little R50 slash two. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just fun. It's just fun to ride. Uh, we got too many bikes, mate. That was a bad question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Too many. I I I know to a degree of what you're saying. Sometimes you get to a point where you've got too many just to keep up. And too many to look after, too many to ride, too many parts to buy, too many projects. Uh, I, I get that to a certain degree. Are you, are you thinking about sort of getting the fleet to a lower number, selling some things off, or what? No, I'm I'm in business. I'm just not a very clever businessman. I tend to build things, and and I push them into the warehouse. And it's strange, man. I don't know why I do it. But um, if someone, I sold two bikes this year because people came and asked me, could they buy a bike? And I sold them a bike. But um, I don't know. Um, someone asked me, oh, a couple of years ago, how many bikes have you got? Was, and I, I thought, oh, mate, I've got must have the makings of 30 bikes. And I went to bed that night and I thought, no, I lied to that man. In the morning, I told him. Mate, I was wrong. I've got the makings of 40 bikes. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's funny, mate. Um, and it's 
you know, we came to this country with $625 and a family and a little bag of used clothes each. And um, it's just, for me, it's just funny. I've got all these bikes and I've got tools and I've got uh, parts and, and I'm computer literate. I bought everything face to face with somebody. And I, it, to me, it's, I don't know, it's funny. I just think it's funny. Yeah. I, yeah, it, but it also, it also, it troubles me in a way because I've got too much stuff. <laughs> I know what you mean. Well, I, I tend to, every year or so, I tend to go through the garage, uh, look at parts that have been sitting there or things I've had for longer than a couple years and try to call things out on occasion just so I don't get buried in stuff. But, um, Again, you know, I don't know if there's such a thing as, as too many bikes, uh, especially when you're walking out in the garage just to enjoy looking at them and, and enjoying them that way. I want to ask you, uh, David, let's sort of go back to the beginning here, maybe as a youth uh, or a young man. What initially got you interested in motorcycles? How'd you get the motorcycle bug to start out with? Um, I wanted to. I wanted to sail around the world, and uh, I used to go down to the jetties and stand there, hoping one of the sailors would talk to me, but I was very shy. I didn't have a father. You grow up a bit shy, and I wanted to sail, and I read all these books about sailing. I wanted to sail around the world. Oh, yes, and I knew everything. I taught myself all this stuff from books about sailing boats and everything, and um, but no one ever talked to me, and the door never opened. And one day, someone lent me some of his brother's Two Wheels magazines. That was the magazine in Australia, the motorcycle magazine. And um, I didn't even want to borrow them. And he, he kind of forced them on me, and I had a, about a three-mile walk home. And I got home, and I thought, well, I should read this. And I opened the magazine, and the first article that I opened was about valves and, and spring rates and everything, and it was like right over my head, and I went, oh, wow, I'd never understand this. And I was a bit discouraged, and I turned the page, and there was a story written by an Englishman. It was one of a series of stories, and he was on his way to Australia. He was on a Triumph, and his friend was on a Norton, and they were riding overland, and they were, in that story, they were crossing some mountains in Afghanistan, and I just had an epiphany. I can sail around the world on a motorbike. <laughs> and uh, that was, uh, I must have been about 15 and a half. And I've had bikes since I was 16, and I'm 68 now, so that's more than half a century. Yeah, wow. What was, uh, what was your first experience with an airhead then? So did you see one uh, in Australia? I don't know how prevalent they might have been uh, for you as a youth there. No, but I was, they were very popular, but I ended up at age 17, I had a, I bought a second-hand Yamaha 650 XS2, mm. and I bought, I bought it that day, and I felt like I was God's gift to the world, and I parked it. I parked it, and I was sitting down just looking at it, and an old chappy came up. He must have been a soldier from the Second World War, fought in North Africa, and he, he came up and he said, that's a nice bike, son, and I felt pretty chuffed, you know because you do at that age. And he said, but if you ever get a chance, get a really good one, get a German one, because he must have ridden captured German bikes in the Second World War. And then uh, I ended up, um, I finished my apprenticeship because we did apprenticeships in Australia, indentured apprenticeships. We left school at 15 
and then went went and worked. When I finished, I went to the outback, and I was in an old pickup truck out in the desert, and two BMWs went past me, and they must have been slash fives, I think, black ones, and in the haze, in the dust, and or the bull dust, and the corrugations, and these two bikes, and I looked at them, and uh, I thought, wow, I'd like to have one of those bikes one day, and uh, I think the first one I bought was a 90 slash six, and... Uh, Again, I thought I was God's gift to the world, and uh, it got stolen seven weeks later. Oh, my gosh. That's, yep. that's heartbreaking. I've had four bikes stolen in my life. I, it's, it's a funny feeling. Um, it is, isn't it? I, that's happened to me, too. Um, yeah, you feel really violated and helpless. I think theft is a, it's a, it's a violent crime, and I think stealing and being a burg- being burgled, now, it's, it's something along the lines of, rape yeah just we use the word violated and um but that's just life you know and i was going to ride that bike around the world but they stole it and i ended up saving up some money and i bought a secondhand kawasaki 900 and i rode that around the world it wasn't really the ideal bike but um i rode a z1 kawasaki around the world so big deal eh? in the 70s um and then my wife and I went to Australia in 1987 from the Philippines, and we had no transport. And uh, there's a street in, in Sydney called Motorcycle Alley. It's, it's, it's Wentworth Avenue. It runs up from Central Station, and all the bike shops were there. And we only had $3,000. I thought, well, we need transport. And um, we went. I went in all the shops to try to find a secondhand bike, you know, and I couldn't have, they were all too much money. And uh, serendipitously, I, I went in the, the, the BMW shop just, just to have a wee, just to use their toilet. And uh, I had to squeeze past all these bikes. And as I squo- squeezed past the bikes to use the toilet at the back of the shop, um, I squeezed past the bike I invented in my head when I was riding around the world in the 70s. And that was an R80 GS. And I invented that bike in my head, and I would tell people, we need to have a bike like this with a big tank, and it should be like this. And everyone told me, oh, no, mate, that'll never work. That'll never work. <laughs> and there it was. And um, I think they, I ended up bargaining the price down on it, and I bought that for $3,000. It, uh, it had 142,000 kilometers on it, and it was a 1981 R80 GS, and that's what we ended up, we traveled in the bush in Australia. We traveled up to New Guinea on it, my wife and myself. And then uh, when our daughter was born, we put a sidecar on. And then we ended up, in 1990, we left Australia. We put on an airplane to Singapore on a cargo plane. And then we rode that around the world for the better part of 10 years. That old bike, it was a bloody good old bike, mate, that. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's kind of airheads, and now I had to find I had to do work in America, and um, I just I'm a carpenter by trade, but after a while working as a carpenter, I got I got sick of the people I worked with. <laughs> well, I don't need to hear about your sex life or your lack of sex life. <laughs> I don't want to spend eight to ten hours a day around someone I'd cross the road to avoid. <laughs> I hear you. Well, that... I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear your racial prejudices, and uh, so I end up working on bikes, and it's been a learning curve. But that's what I've done for the last 
Oh, maybe better part of 20 years here in your country. Yeah. Uh, Barnsley Motor Works. And we'll talk about that. Let's, I want to go back to that um, to that GS, that first year, first generation GS. And boy, what a what a story, uh, how you just happened to come upon that bike. And it was really something you had envisioned that you wanted to build and would be a perfect travel companion for you. What when you got that bike, what do you recall needed attention on it? Um, what what state was it in when you purchased it? It wasn't too bad. Um, there was something wrong with the forks, and uh, they took it back and fixed that for us. The, the forks, I think, the bumpers were gone inside the forks, and nothing wrong with it. Made it was really good bike. It was it was just a really good bike, and we took it way up in the bush in Australia where you, my wife's from the Philippines and uh, she she thought Sydney, she couldn't believe how uncrowded Sydney was and then suddenly we're in the bush where you see something brought to bear by the hands of men and you'll travel a day or more before you see something else brought to bear by the hands of men and it was a wonderful bike way out in the bush, the two of us. If you were one up, you might have used the Yamaha Tanare or something, but two up, traveling in the bush in rough roads, that was a ripper bike, mate. That I bet, yeah. Bike. Yeah, I've got the same one. I've got an 81 model uh, that I purchased, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, and I live here uh, in the Arkansas Ozarks, uh, which is a real rough terrain. I'm I'm off tarmac more than I'm on tar- tarmac sometimes, and not by choice. And so... I can appreciate what you say there, that that first generation GS, uh, I think every bike after that just got progressively heavier and more complicated, in my opinion, uh, for a true travel bike. Although, you know, someone can make the argument of the larger displacement and the the later fairing uh, sort of rebar setup uh, was helpful uh, to a traveler. I'm still leaning a lot more towards that first-generation uh, bike uh, just for general everyday use. It's, you know, it, it's a it's a billy goat for me getting around here. It, it, it's light, flickable. I, I had a uh, Honda 650R uh, for a while, XR650R, and it was comparable to that, not power necessarily, but uh, in the way I could just sort of push it around and, you know, riding on gravel bars, crossing creeks, going up steep uh, hills, mountains, going down, stuff like that. So uh, I'm with you 100% on that. Um, You you eventually added a sidecar to that bike. uh, And that was really, as you mentioned, the the ride that got you around uh, on your big trip with your wife and your daughter. Um, And you've had a lot of years to think about this. And I'm sure... The, some of these thoughts have crossed your mind. <clears throat> in hindsight, all those years on that bike, I, I imagine you were just doing repairs, modifications, and things as they came about, a, as it was needed. Um, but at the same time, you were probably noticing some shortcomings and might have had some thoughts, gee, you know, if I had the the benefit of some time and better knowledge, there might have been, or not better knowledge, but uh, experience, let's put it that way. There might have been some things you would have changed uh, on that bike, possibly. What What are some of those things you noticed uh, riding it around? And maybe in hindsight now, let's say you were going to, somebody asked you to prepare a rig like that 
for them. Are there some some things you would right out of the bat say here, look, these are some problems I had. These are some things I would have changed on the front end. No, um, we eventually, before we left Australia, we put Earl's Forks on the front. Oh, okay. And that's, that, that was, that's, makes a difference between a, a good sidecar rig and a bad sidecar rig. Big time, yeah. But, uh, and then one time in Pakistan, we cracked the backbone the, the main spine, and we had to drive it for quite a while it was with the bike clicking, clicking, and um, they fixed it. They didn't charge us any money. They welded it up. They put a bandage on it. And in Pakistan, many times you won't charge. Generally, you won't charge for anything because, sir, you are, we are only done our duty <laughs> in our country. Uh, we could learn a lot from those people. But because they made... <laughs> the, the, on... on most of the BMWs, the rest of the BMWs, there's a two-wall laminated uh, backbone. On the GS, it lightened the frame. I think that's the only problem we ever had with that bike, mate. It was bulletproof. It was bloody bulletproof. It's been underwater. It's been crashed into. We flipped it forwards on a, in a, on a sand dune in the Sahara, like us over tit. That thing's been, it's been crashed into a couple of times. Um, mate, that thing was bulletproof. And it was nothing I couldn't fix on the side of the road. Nothing at all. Wow. The BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and BMW Motorrad have teamed up for a 10% rebate for MOA member purchases of original BMW apparel, accessories, and all OEM parts. In essence, if it has a BMW motorcycle part number, MOA members can earn a 10% rebate on the purchase. Those of you doing a big refresh or restoration on your 247, no doubt this can save you some cash. Or maybe you're in the market for a new riding suit or jacket, those are included as well. Every purchase made at a BMW motorrad-based dealer in the United States, for example, Max or Bob's BMW, or online at shopbmwmotorcycles.com qualifies for the rebate. MOA members simply submit purchase information directly to the MOA for the rebate. Rebates are managed by the MOA and members are free to support any dealer of their choice where original BMW parts, gear, and accessories are sold. This promotion is scheduled to run through the remainder of 2023 so if you're already an MOA member, well done, and you've probably already taken advantage of this offer. If you're not an MOA member, visit the About section of this podcast for information on the MOA's free one-year membership promotion and start earning 10% back on all BMW parts, apparel, and accessories. Thanks to all the fine folks at the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America for supporting our efforts here. Now back to our chat with David Woodburn. What about, so, and we're talking uh, sort of in the decade of the 90s uh, on that trip. What was parts availability like for you? I can remember in Kathmandu going and purchasing some Volkswagen points to change my points. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mate, I carried parts with me because I had a sidecar, and I would carry parts. I even carried parts I didn't think I'd need, and I 
I didn't really need them, but I used them to fix a lot of other people's bikes because in the in that era, people were travelling on those BMWs. That was the that was the go to round the world bike, and uh, actually I learnt a lot of my skill, for want of a better word, by fixing other people's bikes in far flung places. And um, I'd go, oh mate, you got an issue there, don't you? And uh, then I'd fossick around. I'd say, is this what you think you're going to need? And I had it under the seat of the sidecar. I carried a lot of bits and pieces, and I carried tools. And I ended up like a uh, automobile repair man on the road for people, for in some ways. And uh, I learned a lot by fixing people's bikes for them. So I, I didn't have much trouble with our bike at all. Oh, in the in the jungle, because we're in mud all the time. Well, we were in mud like slurry all the time and for days and days and days. The front brake pads just wore out. Mm-hmm. Not the brakes, but they just wore out. So we made brake pads from an old tractor clutch and we riveted them on using bits of brake line and flared it over. Um, so we did that and the rear main seal leaked just from being in the mud all the time. And I ended up opening it up and I twisted the garter seal, <laughs> the garter spring, <laughs> tightened it up fix that um wait we didn't have any i never broke a spoke wow but i always lace my two spokes together where they cross over Mm. and um always lace them together i learned that that was the way you used to do it back in the day and i don't think i had a lot of punches and one time in india we had three punches in a day i think and uh it might have been three punches in two days and Mate, I pumped up a lot of bloody tires with that little black pump. <laughs> it worked. 9900, 9900, and then 1, 2, 3, 4, <laughs> 89, 90, 91, 92, 99, 100. And then I pumped up a lot of tires with that little pump that everyone disdains. Oh, mate, that was, but, yeah, you get a good arm muscle pumping bikes. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's so. great. You know, you mentioned that story uh, about the folks uh, helping you in Pakistan now. I don't have the benefit of uh, any international travel uh, on a motorcycle, but I've toured the United States uh, here. Uh, I don't want to say extensively, but I've taken a lot of long road trips over the years. And you sort of bring up a point there. And th- and this was years ago for me, prior, you know, right around the time you were doing this. Uh, for me, it was in the early 90s. Uh, a buddy of mine and I did a long cross-country trip uh, across the United States, out in the Western states. And you know, I found something very similar where in my case, I had a bracket on a windshield. I had a wind jammer on the bike uh, at the time and the, the bracket uh, had the just the welds had snapped. I pulled into a, a shop on a Sunday. I was in Colorado somewhere, found a welding shop. The guy was in there working on his car or doing something. And I said, hey, you know, I need help with the repair. And he said, hey, you know, sorry, we're closed. Uh, you know, come back Monday. And I, okay, you know, I wasn't uh, going to press the guy. And as I was walking out to the bike, he noticed uh, I had Tennessee tags on the back. He said, now, wait a minute. Are you out here from, from Tennessee? I said, yeah. You know, I'm just uh, out riding around. Uh, I was by myself. I had lost my friend. We had sort of you know, as a, if you ever travel two up, sometimes that happens. Uh, somebody decides to go another way, and uh, we had lost each other for about a week or so. Anyway, so he sees my tag. <clears throat> he just says, hey, bring it on in. Let's get this thing welded up. It won't take 10 minutes. 
uh, and, you know, wouldn't wouldn't accept a dollar and, uh, you know, offered me a beer, a cup of coffee, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, as a young man, that's when I started to learn those type of lessons on the road and things about humanity and helping your uh, fellow brothers out. And I think uh, uh, that's something that you talk about. And that's a sort of uh, aspect that of life that you gained from traveling and one that you promote and talk about a lot, isn't it? Yeah, you should always entertain strangers because one day you may entertain angels. And that's, um, that's, uh, that's in the Bible, but, uh, that's also in the, the, the Muslim people also believe that. And, um, you know, God has a litmus test. It's how you treat the widow, the fatherless and the alien mm-hmm. come amongst you. And, um, we're meant to help people on the road and um, in countries like Pakistan and Turkey, and Morocco and a lot of Muslim countries, we had incredible courtesy, made incredible help. They wouldn't let us pay for machine work. They wouldn't let us pay for anything. But that said, I tell you, the one country in, uh, that, that in Europe that we were given the most kindness was actually Germany. The, those people there were, yeah, those people were very kind to us, the Germans. Yeah. Well, wow, that's good to know. I came to, I came to your country in 1980, 79, I came here. I was traveling around the world on that Kawasaki 900. And I was treated with so much courtesy here back in that time as a young man traveling around the world that for the next 20 years as I traveled the world or I was in, a, in other countries and the conversation never turned to America and it would get negative um, a lot of the world has a negative view of America, not not of Americans, but of America. And um, I would always tell people about the courtesy I was treated with here. And I would, I would always, you know, be the, the advocate. I'd say, well, I was treated very well. But I came back this time, and it's not quite the same as it was in the 70s. And I, I think that's not just America. I think that's the world. I think people are frightened now. And I think people have got too much stuff now. And they they forget to stop for a hitchhiker, or they, you know, my wife lets me bring hitchhikers home. <laughs> um, we forget that, you know, and um, I think we're, I think it's really really important. I think it's, I, I just know the difference it made on our journey when people helped us out. We didn't travel to freeload off people, but the hospitality um, that that we. It, Made a, it made a great difference in our journey. Like I just said, we've got two English people stopped here last night. They don't know us. We don't know them. We had the time of our life, and they're on their way now to Mexico. So um, it's great joy made to be kind to people, eh? It is. It and really is. I, I think as a society, we've forgotten that. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, my experience is, again, uh, similar, but not maybe on the grand scale. Yeah, you're probably familiar with the uh, BMW MOA and the Airheads. They have those, uh, like the anonymous book and the directory, uh, where you can help fellow riders. Uh, you know, you leave a phone number or email or something like that. And I have to say, uh, in a lot of my travels, uh, some of those interactions I made, you know, maybe when we needed a repair or I helped somebody out because they needed a place to stay or needed a repair. Those end up being some of the more memorable life stories and events uh, on those just happenstance meetings, just because of being available for somebody. It sounds corny, matey, but you got a duty. 
it's not just the Marines who have a duty. We have a duty to each other. And um, some people take advantage of that. We've had people take advantage of that. Oh, I bet, yeah. And, uh, but we've had some wonderful experience. We've had all kinds of people from all over the world stop here at our place. And before we built a bedroom for ourselves here, we, bought, we built a bunk room and two guest rooms just because we had so much hospitality. But a lot of that hospitality was from people that we couldn't repay. And um, there's one story in the book, and uh, we'd had all this trouble. We'd been captured by rebels, I suppose captured or, or waylaid by rebel soldiers in the jungle, and they'd let us go. And then we'd had trouble with um, government soldiers, and we had to evade them. And it was late at night, and we ended up camping in the in the jungle. And uh, in the morning, this one man, and he, he had a farm up over the hill, and he'd left twice because of the fighting. And in the morning, he came down, and he brought a billy can with um, potatoes. He, he, he'd gone and boiled potatoes for us in the dark, and he brought us down to feed us. And on the top was an egg. And an egg is so... There was no food in the jungle. That, that was such a thing of value. And he said, for votre petit déjeuner, monsieur, for your breakfast, sir, uh, le pomme de terre, the potatoes, et an oeuf for votre fille, and, a, and, a, and, a, and an egg for your daughter. Wonderful. What a, what a story. What, where was that? That was um, trying to get to Goma, to get to, that was in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm. And that's, that's when we had the family motto. If we can only make it to Rwanda, we'll be all right. <laughs> that, that, that should be on our family crest. You know? <laughs> That's um, funny. Yeah, that well, was. You, yeah. So you mentioned uh, your travels to the states uh, in in the seventies, uh, and then I guess maybe s- subsequently uh, on your second trip, how you you had a lot of options um, and places to live. I mean, let's to put it mildly you'd experienced a, a lot of the world. Uh, how did you guys settle on the United States as a landing spot? We traveled down across Africa and we didn't have much money. I've been poor all my life. I just didn't know it. Um, I didn't know a lack of money was poverty. And as I look back, I, I realized we we're very poor. So we'd found work in, well, I found work in Uganda because we're running out of money, and then I found work in Zambia, and then I found work in South Africa. But we didn't have enough money to go back across Africa again. And coming down, we had some. We went through some really difficult times, strange times. And to, to retrace those steps, I, I, we, we didn't have the fortitude at the time, and we didn't have the money. But before we left Switzerland, we'd entered the green card lottery. And actually, when we got to Kampala in Uganda, we had a letter from the American government. My wife had been drawn in the green card lottery. Wow. And um, it's it's ironic because my grandfather fought in an American uniform in the Second World War. He was too old to go on active duty with the Australians. He'd fought in Gallipoli. He'd fought on the Western Front. He'd fought 1914-18 as an infantryman. And uh, in the Second World War came... They, they said, you'll have to take a desk job, you're too old. So he joined the Americans and fought. And um, it's ironic that I live here now, but we didn't expect to stay very long. We just came. It was an option because 
uh, Africa's a peninsula and we were at the bottom of the peninsula. And um, so we had this, we'd, we'd been given a visa for America, an immigrant visa, so we came. We didn't expect to stay so long. Um, like I said, we arrived here with a week's wages, the equivalent of a week's wages for a, you know, someone who works in a shop. And um, I don't know, we just end up staying. I I, I kind of got to stay now because I've my my daughter's married American and we got grandchildren here. Um, I kind of it's kind of a love hate relationship with me, your country. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> that's legit. Uh, I I understand. Was it Georgia where you initially landed? Uh, we landed in Florida. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a lot of trouble. Um, I've been I was assaulted several times. My wife's been assaulted a couple of times. After 911, we got, um, my wife used to get phone calls every day. People came to our house to beat us up. Um, we had a lot of hard times, really hard times in Florida. A lot of, we lived through a lot of shootings. We'd have, we probably lived through 100 shootings with 100 yards of us. Because when you got no money, you've got to live in bad mm-hmm. areas. Yeah. If, if you've got money, you can do what they do, uh, there's an American tradition of you circle the wagons. Well, that was, you can live in a gated community, you know, but we didn't, and we were not a people group. Uh, you know, the Puerto Ricans lived together, the, the mm-hmm. Cubans lived together, the Jamaicans lived together, but we were not a little a people group, so we were a little house on the prairie. So well, we had, we I, had, a, lot of, we had a lot of difficult times. I can imagine, and I, I hate to say this and generalize this, but I think you would... Uh, agree with this and probably say it uh, if I asked it, but here's a guy with a funny accent and a wife from the Philippines uh, in the in parts of the Deep South. And having moved, I, I grew up in Ohio and I live in Arkansas now, and I can tell you uh, it's not uncommon and it's not as much these days. Uh, but when I first moved here, uh, the phrase, you ain't from around here, uh, I heard that a lot, and I'm sure you did too. Here in Georgia, we thought people would be nicer because there were churches. We've had rubbish in our letterbox. I had a rifle leveled at me from a pickup truck when I was getting the mail one day. We've had rubbish over our fence. We've had our animals shot and stolen. We've had all kinds of stuff done to us. We People have tried to have us arrested. We've They've accused us of stealing. They've, they've done all sorts of stuff to us here, and Mate, I should have gone to church with them when they first invited me. <laughs> yeah, I'd, boy, I'd, I'd probably, they'd probably be inviting me to join the lodge by now. It's a handshake, but it's it's strange. It's funny. And, um, you know, once you travel, you can't be, you can't, it's, a, it's the best remedy for bigotry. It is, isn't it? That's such a great point. That's such a great point. You can't be bigoted anymore. And, and uh, I think a lot of people are bigoted partly because they're, they're ignorant, but partly because they're frightened. They don't want they don't want anyone that's different than them. And that, that, because that threatens their insecurity because they're not actually secure in what they do, but they do it because that's the way they've always done it or that's the way their neighbors do it. And if you come along and you're a little bit different, then you're actually attacking them and you don't even know it. And uh, so they hate you. And People around here, they, they think I voted for Mr. Obama. <laughs> they just assume that, yeah. But they don't put Mr. in front of his name. And no. I, I can't vote. I'm not an American citizen. Um, so anyway, so that's life, mate. And 
despite that, we've made a we've made a business here, and we've made a bit of a life here. So, well, have 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 things settled down in that regard? I mean, have have you um, become part of the community, or are you still sort of on on guarded watch these days? Mate, we're on guarded watch, to be honest, and it's really sad. Um, but we're not we're not paranoid. But yeah, we're careful, and we still have stuff done to us. We we. It's too hard to explain, but yeah, people still do stuff to us here. It's. I did explain to the mayor one day. I said, "You people run to church three times a week. You'll knock the doors down if they don't open them on time." But you never read your Bible. I said, "God's got a litmus test." And what I said before, it's how you treat the widow, the fatherless, yeah. alien who dwell amongst you. I said, "You know, at the judgment day, we're no better than you, but we'll be a testimony against you and your village." And. Uh, then I thought, wow, what did I tell him that for? <laughs> <laughs> he was actually he, he was actually nice to me after that. He, I think it shocked him. I think it just really shocked him, but the word didn't get to everybody, I'm afraid. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2-Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2-Valve have years of experience with the 247 Airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2-Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2-Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model, and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both twin shock and post-81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. Remember to subscribe to the Boxer 2-Valve YouTube channel to keep up to date with their new video series that's coming out. Now, back to our final segment with David Woodburn. Yeah, th that brings me to another question. So, again, let's go back in time a little bit here. You mentioned you, you moved to Florida, ended up settling in Georgia. And, David, talk to me a little bit about changing that lifestyle from the traveling sort of nomad to all of a sudden uh, the daily life in one place. That has to be a difficult transition to make. I've talked to, I've interviewed some other travelers uh, who've maybe not logged as many miles, but have done similar trips, round the world trips. And just there, there was a difficulty for them getting back into the daily quote unquote routine uh, of life. It can seem, I guess, in some ways, uh, very mundane uh, and unusual. How, what was that transition like for you? Mate, it's still really difficult. Yeah. It's, it's really, really difficult. It's like you've... I, I listen to sol they, on the TV sometimes, soldiers talking about coming home and not fitting in. Mm -hmm. and I relate 100%. 
I, I can just relate. I, you can't fit in. What people talk about doesn't make any sense anymore, but you can't say anything. So you end up biting your tongue a lot and swallowing the blood. Um, it's very, very difficult. And you miss the spontaneity. You mm. miss the adventure. It's, it's incredibly difficult. And I've traveled actually since I was 19, more or less, and I'm 68 years old now, so that's quite a lot of years. You, and even now I'm traveling because I'm a stranger in a strange land. This is not my country. And uh, it's incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, that's the downside of it. You, you just, you, you'll never fit in again because you've seen too much. You've, you've looked over those high hedges. Yeah. And you've seen stuff. And you can't unsee what you've seen and you can't unhear what you hear, what you've heard, and you can't unknow what you now know. And um, it's really hard. Um, it's going to be very, very, very lonely, extremely lonely. Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult, and that's the downside of traveling. And um, we, we, we sometimes talk about going traveling again. It seems like living in one place is, to me, this is not, this is just, um, it might not be exactly true, but sometimes it seems to me it's just like the, it's just like you're trying, it's accumulation of possessions and prestige. And that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, said the man with the makings of 40 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, so, David, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm a little surprised to hear that. I mean, considering how many years it's been uh, since you sort of settled where you are now, uh, you, you started a business, you mentioned your daughter's been married, you've got grandkids. For a lot of folks, that, that would sort of assimilate them to that sort of lifestyle. But it's interesting to note that it's something you're still in many ways kind of struggling with. Yeah, these people came last night, English people. And um, I said, you know, they, they said you're doing us a favor to let us stop. I said, you're doing me a favor because I am traveling now vicariously. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I can sit and talk to them and there's no barriers because they're living on the road and we've, we've lived on the road. And at the end of one night, and we went through a nice bottle of red wine and Amy cooked some dead pig and, and uh, blah, blah, blah. I probably know them as well as I know anybody just after one night because we don't have any barriers, because we're not competing with each other, because we're, we're out on that tangent, we're out on that limb. And that's the beauty of travel. I think that's why... In my country, on Anzac Day, all the old soldiers would get together because though they went through terrible times, there was a thing called camaraderie. There was a thing that doesn't translate very well into modern society. And that's, that, was, that was, you know, they'd grow old, but they still came together and, 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 and sat with other, other soldiers and, um, because they understood things that you couldn't explain to other people. And... and that sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? But no, I, I totally get it. I, I totally understand. Again, I have a much smaller perspective, uh, but uh, it, it makes all the sense in the world to me. I can totally relate to what you're saying. I, I want to ask you how that then, in some ways, I think relates uh, to the book you wrote. I imagine uh, you know your head was full of stories. You had things you wanted to get out. Uh, you wanted to get on paper, and I guess part of your reassimilation process and working through all that 
the writing that book had to have been somewhat cathartic for you. In some ways, it was an enema for my soul. Yeah. And I didn't have to remember. I wrote a lot of that from memory, and there's no lies told in that. And actually, it's, it's all understated. But I had all that in my head, and I thought, well, I haven't got that much room in my head if I write it down. And I've been writing more stories because there's a lot of stories didn't go into that book. But I wrote it for our daughter because I thought we owed her either an apology or a debriefing. <laughs> One of the two. Yeah, she had such a parents, and she lived such a strange life. So I wrote it for her, and then I ended up going to a writer's guild. I, I, I got expelled from school age 15, and I took apprenticeship, mate. I'm not I'm a literary genius. And I went to a writer's guild in the university town, and they're all clever clogs, those people with PhDs and their authors and blah, blah, blah. And um, so they kept telling me, well, you should publish this, you should publish this. And I was only going to make one copy for our daughter. And then in the end, I ended up publishing it. I still don't know if it's any good, but anyway, I did it. So, um, yeah. Tell, tell me about the title. Is that a, a twist of a phrase from somewhere? I guess uh, if I'm looking at it, if I were to translate it to proper American English, it would be this big fella walks about or something like that. But I guess... You're sort of taking uh, pronunciation and uh, a little bit of uh, wordplay. Tell me about the title. It means... Hold on. Start start that again. We had a bad uh, phone line there. It's this long journey. And it's it's the way that older Aborigines in the north of Australia used to talk and the people in New Guinea and Solomon Islands, they spoke a thing called Pigeon English. And... In, in, if the, the full title would be uh, This Big Pal of Walkabout Belong Me, This Big Journey of Mine. And I just, I don't know if it was politically correct to make that title, but I always thought the Aborigines had a lot more sense than the white men in some ways. And um, they didn't seem trapped by materialism. And they used to be able to just pack up and go walk about. Um, I just... I kind of made the title as a testimony to the Aborigines, but maybe it's politically incorrect, but I made that title anyway. I, I, I don't think so. It, it's a good title. The last thing I want to ask you about this here is you mentioned your daughter. Uh, you wrote the book, uh, as you said, as either an apology or a debriefing for her, uh, which is some good insight on your part. Uh, I, and I, you can't speak for her. I know that. Uh, but how do you think that trip uh, has shaped her life going forward? In some ways, very well. The one, the one thing that sparked me to write that story, I we didn't have much time we can make. We had to survive here. We had to survive. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult. But And then I had time to reflect. And when you hold a 10-year-old girl at arm's length while a group of soldiers beat you with sticks and you've got to wonder what's going through the little girl's head. And I think some of the stuff that happened in the jungle was too much for a little girl. And there was, that was just one incident. There was other incidents and there was a lot of uncertainty. And, and maybe she's got to work through that, I suppose. Um, we tried to bring up our daughter to be tolerant of other people. We tried to bring up our daughter to be generous 
we tried to bring up our daughter to think about other people. So some of it's good, some of it's bad. Um, we went through some tough times. She saw her father dying from cholera. She's seen her father dying from malaria. Um, she's seen some. She's seen some where, where you were literally dying and you weren't going to wake up the next morning. And um, so I suppose that's hard on a little girl, but. You know, you can only give your kids what you can give them and whatever you do with your children, if you give them one thing, they'll miss out on another. You know, if you give them horse riding lessons, they won't have ballet lessons. Um, we just did our best and I don't know. Um, she's a very generous girl. She's a very um, practical girl. So I'm not really sure. I can't really speak for her. But, um, um, you know, I just did my best, mate. I... You know, I, I grew up at age 26. I'd travel around the world on a motorbike. I'd traveled in the outback of Australia. I'd been gone for six and a half years. And that's when um, I found out uh, my brother, uh, was my, my brother and I were at my mum's place. And my brother said to me, you know, mum's not white. I went, what? He said, I found a book about our family in the library. Mum's not white. And my mother was a colored, I hate that fucking word. Yeah. Mom, my, it's the wrong word. My mother was a, a, not a white. She was a mixed race woman who passed as white, and she hid all her past. And we came from, we came from people in Australia who were like Lewis and Clark in America. And I'm the direct heir, and I never knew that, mate, because my mum had to hide her past. Mm. And she's the granddaughter of the a princess from Samoa, and um, I'm related to the king of Samoa, mate. <laughs> How about um, that? Yeah. And and so, because of that, I grew up in a strange way, you know. And Dad died, and blah blah blah. But Mum, Mum did her best. My Mum made a lot of mistakes, but she did her best. She played the she played the cards that were dealt her the best. And I don't know, my wife and I, we played the cards that we were dealt the best, and we just did our best. And um, I don't know, I don't know if we did a good thing or a bad thing, but we just did our best, mate. Does she have any interest in motorcycles? You know, she rebelled against her dad and doesn't ride a motorbike. Hallelujah. Who yeah. <laughs> motorbike? But she used to work for us as a schoolgirl. She worked as a mechanic for us. And I paid her. I paid her up to $15 an hour. And that's because uh, you should pay people a fair wage. And she was a good mechanic. And uh, she was with some school friends one day in a motor car boys and girls and they got a flat tire and she was the only one who knew how to <laughs> <laughs> that's good now that as a dad that's got to make you proud yeah her mother got was being assaulted by a white man one time in florida and uh at our house and uh our daughter picked up a 357 and uh when i came home they told from work they told me and i said uh, did you aim the gun at him darling said, no, Daddy, you told me when it was horizontal I should be squeezing the trigger, but I stood the way you taught me, Daddy, and I think he saw me because so, he stopped. <laughs> so she's a very practical girl. Yeah, that is great advice. I mean, I am not, uh, I am not a firearms aficionado, but uh, I like what you said there. If, you're, if the gun's going to be horizontal, you're pulling the trigger. I, I 100% agree with that. that. That's not something you play around with. I told my daughter got to do what you got to do but you should always consider it to send someone to a godless eternity mm -hmm. wow you should always run a 
a wire from your head to your heart and you should think with your head but make sure it's plugged into your heart and don't think with the firearm in your hand and a lot of people seem to think with the firearm in your hand I said it's a tool and but I taught it because you, you worry about you worry about girls don't you growing up yeah yeah uh, well let not a gun nut either, mate. Don't no, you? no, me neither. Well, let's turn the topic a little bit lighter uh, and get back to motorcycles. But I appreciate uh, your your thought and consideration there. It's a, a lot of good uh, a lot of good things uh, that we discussed there. When we visited on the phone uh, prior to our interview, just chatting and getting to know each other, uh, you mentioned uh, you had uh, a relationship with Craig Vetrick at Benchmark Motorworks, who uh, recently, I want to say it's been a year and a half, two years, I think, sold his business, retired. Max BMW bought it. Uh, but talk to me a little bit about your relationship with Craig. Mate, we met him at the chicken rally years ago. And a lot of people didn't open up to us. And a lot of people didn't let us in. And he was just nice to us. And we couldn't understand why he was so nice to us. And he would invite us to his rally, and I think he invited us two years in a row, and we we were struggling, mate. We couldn't get away to go to Mississippi five hours away. We were struggling. We, we just couldn't do that. We either didn't have the money or the time, but he kept inviting us. And the third year we went, we got in a, I think we got in an old 1981 F250 diesel pickup truck, a farm truck, and drove over there. And you know... Everyone else there was camping. We had a room. You know, I don't know why we had a room. Everyone else camped and he gave us a room. And he treated he treated us really well. And I don't know why. There was other shops I might have mentioned before. There was a few other entities, BMW entities, that tried to sabotage us in various ways when we opened our shop. And why I would do that, I, I would not know. He was just so kind to me. He would lecture me on being a capitalist because I'm not a very good capitalist. <laughs> I would, I'd have to put up with that, you know. And, uh, he'd tell me to put my rates up. He'd tell me to do this. He'd tell me to do that. So we started going there, and every year we got a room and everybody else camped. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know why he liked us. He just liked us. And... Um, he would send us slash five and slash six work because he didn't work on new bikes. And we would buy parts from him. And uh, sometime I owed him. I, I'd owe him money. I'd say, mate, I can't, I can't pay you that straight away. He said, you hear me complaining? And uh, <laughs> I, I bought a lot of stuff on tick with him on tick, you know. On, I'd pay him in a month's time. He was really, really good to us. And... Um, in the end, he offered us to buy his business before Max bought it, but we it's its above our pay grade. We wouldn't have known what to do with all that. But he did offer, and I said, well, I couldn't pay for it. He said, well, you can pay me off. But we're not part sellers, really. Yeah. And But he started sending me, he started doing, he stopped doing whole bikes, so he started sending me restorations, and then he, he was doing components, and then he started, he stopped doing that, and, so he sent us a lot of engine work and then one day he asked me to go over and do some carpentry for him and the job took me a day and a half now 
if he and Richard hadn't tried to help, it would have only taken a day. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> and as payment for that, he gave me a 28-foot trailer, enclosed trailer, 28-foot long, I think it's 8-foot wide, and it was one carton high across the whole floor of that filled with used parts. That was the last of his used parts. And um, then he put it on his big dual-wheel truck and he drove it back and he wouldn't take any money for fuel. And uh, that, that uh, I think the last three years, just about all our work's been on vintage BMWs, and pre-'69 BMWs. And uh, he's been so kind to us. I, I, I write to him every end, every end of every year and thank him because even now I ring him for advice. But I, one year I wrote to him, I think, well, why, mate, why, why didn't you meet us at the airport when we got here? My life would have been right <laughs> <laughs> and, and our politics are at polar opposites, you know. He's to the right of Genghis Khan and I'm to the left. <laughs> he would call me some days and he'd go, hey, this is Vetch. How's my favorite socialist? Because <laughs> <laughs> we never argued about politics. We never argued. He would tell me all this stuff, and I might take the piss out of him a little bit, but we never argued about it. And we just, he, he was just, he was a godsend, mate, you know. And, nope. and that man's a friggin' national treasure. Yeah. He is a national treasure. And uh, there's, there's no one like him. I've never met anyone like him. He, he's a he's a cantankerous, uh, funny man. He's I don't know, but he, he was really and his missus was really good to us too. Yeah, Elaine, Elaine, I believe, right? Yeah, Elaine was really kind yeah. to us. Um, yeah, so I can't say enough that um, what those people did for us. Um, they've been, and I don't know what they saw in us. And in a way. You know, like in a relay race, in a way, he passed the baton, his baton to us at the end. And um, but we we don't we're not on a scale of him. But uh, anyway, that that's um, that was a that was one of the we've had some high points in America, and that was one of the high points. Yeah, that's great. So, Barnsley Motorworks. Uh, let's transition to that. So uh, that's sort of. Your job these days, I guess, twisting wrenches on motorcycles. Uh, and as you mentioned, Craig was sending you some Slash 5 and later work uh, at the time. And, of course, he specialized on Slash 2 and older. So what's sort of the, the focus uh, of your work there? Uh, you do component repair, restoration, just general work. How do folks, if they want to get in touch with you, they've got a job. Uh, they need you to do just talk about a little bit about your shop and, and what goes on there. Uh, we we've never advertised. We don't think that we don't believe in advertising. We get all our, our jobs word of word of mouth. You know. Um, uh, I don't know. I think someone who puts his armor on shouldn't boast like someone who's taking his armor off. You know. Um, we just. People send us bikes and we just muddle through them. But I went to the technical college and did machining. I did welding and I made all the jigs, the whole gearboxes and engines. I, I didn't worry about bend tests and everything. I just wanted to use the machinery. And then I did machining at another technical college and 
I made all the special tools to work on BMWs and um, to make work on British bikes. I, I would invent them and machine them up, and I was always surprised when they worked at the end. I couldn't believe that I made that and it worked. But um, So we got a lot of tooling here. We got a lot of stuff. We're just a small shop. It's only my wife and myself. And um, we're trying to actually downsize. We'd like to have a little bit of time. I'm tired of working eight days a week. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. So safe to say you're pretty much uh, a full-service shop. Yeah, we can do... What I don't know about these early bikes is probably not worth knowing. But I, when I do have a question, I either ring Vetch or I ring Todd Rasmussen. He's, he's out in New Mexico. He's been really, really kind to us also. He... I can call him if I've got a, I need a second opinion on something. The other person that was very kind over the years, the electrical wizard was uh, Rick Jones. Yeah. Call him. I say, sorry, mate, but I got a question. Because I wire a lot of bikes, but I can't explain the theory. And I wire up a lot of bikes, but uh, Rick understands. He can explain it all to you. And then the other one that helped us was Richard Sheckler up in, uh, Ohio, um, I think he's in, Ohio, Michigan, up there. He was the one who started the Vintage Club years ago. And those few people, that's been my go-to people um, when I have questions. But um, now people ring and ask me questions. <laughs> like, you know, it's strange, someone ringing, they're asking me a question. And lately I've written up a few technical articles. Um, yeah, I think I saw one uh, recently in the Airheads magazine, right? Yeah, I tried to take an article, the technical article, and which is the meat, and I tried to wrap it in a bun, and I tried to make a story around it because um, sometimes technical articles are too technical, and um, maybe someone's not interested in the technical, so I make a story about it if I can. And um, that's my contribution. I can't be a good citizen, so I try to be a good alien. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. said, well said. Now... Uh, aside from uh, Barnsley Motorworks, uh, you also mentioned uh, we talked about you've got uh, facilities for uh, travelers there. And you also mentioned to me, David, you kind of got an annual, I guess we'll call it an event or rally that takes place uh, down there in Georgia. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think we've run it 14 or 15 times. Um, we run it. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Some people stay longer. We'll kill a pig and uh, kill a sheep or a goat, kill a lot of chickens. and um, We just put on an event here. Um, we call it... I got tired of BMW people, to be honest, at one stage, and I stopped it for a year. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm not meant to say that on the wireless. <laughs> but my wife begged me to start it again. So now it's her event. And we uh, we call it a Mugkasama Sama, which is Filipino for get together. And um, she wanted to do it. My wife will she'll cook for she'll do all the cooking for three times a day for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then she'll serve morning and afternoon tea. And uh, she's delighted to do it. She grew up in poverty, but she grew up in a family that was really generous. Part of their poverty was because they gave everything away. And, uh, 
you know, we live in your country, mate. We try to contribute. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not we're not a hundred percent true believers, I'm afraid, but um, but we just try to contribute. So we have that event, and we have some trials bikes here, which I let people ride and hope they don't sue me. And um, <laughs> yeah. we, we do a few other things, and I let people use the workshop. I I try not to do technical anymore because. Um, I'm older, and it's too much work. And actually, now we've been building this last period of time sporadically. We're building to get ready for next year. We try to improve the infrastructure every year, so we have a few more facilities here. I think last year I walked out on the, to the road because I was going to test ride a, a Veloset Venom, and um, it was up on the road. And uh, there was 150 yards of vehicles on one side of the road, and 75 yards on the other and, and a yard was full of bikes and people and I thought just truth mate we've created a bloody monster here. <laughs> and my wife just cooks and we just can't believe we feed everybody um, she just cooks and she's having the time of her life and now some of the other ladies help her to cut stuff up and they're having their little they're having their little get together and uh, it's a nice time I hope it's a nice time yeah, and I I think you mentioned that's uh, in May. The, did you say the first weekend in May? Am I getting first that? Week, first weekend of May. Because we notice that um, clubs of clubs of um, dissipating, people aren't rallies, and we call them boutique rallies. I don't care much for the big rallies, but I like the boutique rallies, the little ones. And ours is, I suppose, if it's a boutique rally. But a lot of those, there's not as many as there were because I suppose people are getting older. But also, we live in the we live in the age of me. It's all about me. It's all about me, and um, you know that. So we just thought, well, if everyone's going in one direction, we'll go in the other direction. And we put this on. We put this on when we didn't have money for to buy socks or underwear. We still put this event on, and people would come here. And I think some of you countrymen turned their nose up at our place because we didn't have much here. But, you know, America's forgotten that some generations ago they were pioneer. This was a pioneer country and people came with nothing and they built stuff and it took years to build. And they, they, they might have built a room, but they had no furniture. And then they built the furniture. They didn't go to rooms ago, you know, and just furnish the whole house all at once. And um, But every year we tried to have more infrastructure. And now people come here and, this is like a wooden city, and um, I tell them it's a, I'm building a wooden city, and I hope it doesn't burn down in my lifetime. And uh, it's just a fun place to come. Vetch came here one year, and he walked around, and he walked around, he walked around, he walked around. He came back to me, and he said, "It's like a carpenter lives here." <laughs> and he said, "A carpenter on acid." <laughs> I said, "Well, you'd know, mate. You'd know." It's <laughs> funny. That's fine. So, yeah, but we just, you know, and we, we just, I don't know why we do it, but it's just, that's just what we do. Solomon says, if you find your hand turns to something, go at it with all your might. I think our neighbors might start to accept us when the truck turns up from Lowe's or Home Depot with the vinyl siding on it, but uh, <laughs> they don't they don't seem to approve of us, but I, I, that's their problem, I suppose. Yeah, them. well... I get there's a there's an old uh, Johnny Cash song too, uh, one piece at a time, uh, about yeah. building a car. So maybe that's applicable there as well. Yeah, um, I've seen people in the Philipp- Philippines beating out panels to make a vehicle 
in their backyard. They were going to make a jeepney, and they were making one piece at a time. Yep. Um, there you go. All right, David. So uh, I want to sort of wrap up our conversation here today. This is a kind of a big overarching question, one that I like to ask uh, a lot of the guests. Um, and you've had uh, a lot of bikes in your in your shop. Uh, you've ridden thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of miles, if not. Um, <clears throat> if there was one design element on the airhead, and let's sort of keep this for conversation's sake, in the 70 to 1995 models, the classic airhead run there, the 247 run, uh, is there a design element or two, uh, some things that if you could go back in time and change, so we wouldn't have to be dealing with those today, what might one of those be? That's a, that's a tricky question. I, I don't think that, let me say it this way. I think there were some high points, the Slash 5, the R90S, the 90 slash 6, and the um, R80 GS. And I don't think you could do much better than any of those bikes. I don't see any problem with any of them. Some of the other bikes, I think, leave a little bit to be desired. Some of them, like the Paralevers, were, that was a, a, a solution looking for a problem. But like on those bikes, I don't see that there's much you could do to improve them. I just think they were good. Uh, and I think if I went around the world tomorrow, I don't think you could... Any one of those bikes that I just mentioned, probably not the 90S, but the 90 slash 6, the R75 slash 5, or the R80 GS, I don't think there's a better bike to travel around the world on. I, I, I just think they were good, mate. I don't have a, I don't really have a complaint about any of them. Um, I don't think there's much you could fix. I think they just got it right. From my point of view, someone else might think differently, but I don't see what's, I don't see anything wrong with them. I think they're great. Now, you're preaching to the choir here, David. Uh, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, a lot of times, you know, for example, somebody will say, well, the side stand's a pain in the ass or... Uh, I'm just looking at a side stand now and I'm <laughs> thinking about it and I like it. <laughs> I'm, I'm I, I'm, <laughs> it's funny. I'm okay with them too. I mean, I will say I've put a brown side stand on uh, a couple slash six bikes. Um, but, uh, I, I'm glad to hear you say that because it's easy to, to go back and nitpick a lot of things. And, you know, that question is really more of a conversational topic than it is an altruism, uh, in, in many ways. Uh, but I think, uh, when you mention that, when I hear you say that, and a lot of listeners hear you say that, uh, you're right. Uh, BMW got it right with those bikes. And I think that's, uh, one of the, reasons uh we're having this conversation and there's uh so many guys still on those bikes these days i'll to give you one complaint because i'm standing here in front of a okay. bike right the center stand that tang to catch it with your foot to put it down they break off they do i, I drill a hole through i take an old engine stud i i i point one end i put it through i weld it on one side i weld it on the other I heat it up with the gas torch, and I bend it in shape, and I cut the extra off. Why couldn't BMW have put a proper tang on there? But if, mate, if that's my only complaint, you know, that's that, that's not even a complaint. I'm just trying to be funny. Yeah. Um, no, mate. And why'd they go those stupid, ugly square rocket covers? Because I'm looking at someone like <laughs> 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 On all my 
my bikes, I take those square ones off and put the round ones on. And uh, no, 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 mate, they just got it right. That if you want to go around the world, it's not the most economical bike for 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 you know for mileage, uh, petrol consumption. But mate, it's a it's a robust bike. The problem with these bikes is crossing rivers because everything's down low. So you've really that's the only disadvantage I found was sometimes crossing deep rivers with them. Um, yeah, getting water in the transmission or uh, in the vent on the final drive. I mean, it's easy to, you know, put a vent hose on the final drive and sort of uh, do away with that. But there, aside from, you know, doing an, al- an alternate sort of speedometer setup uh, and plugging that hole in the transmission, they, you're going to get water in there. Well, if you put that little rubber bell on, you just put some silicon in it, and if you're concerned, put an electric tie on it. But I used to run shrink tape. I'd put shrink tape over it, over the bell, the, the, mm-hmm. the narrow end of the bell, and I'd just run it up under the tank and then shrink, shrink that so no water could get in. And on the rear drive, I put a banjo fitting, yep. and I ran a piece of petrol line up under the tank, and um, then I had a bit of spare petrol line if I needed it, and... Um, no, that was never a problem. It's just the carburetors are down low and yeah. you're traveling through water. The best thing when you get to a river actually is um, let the bike cool down and then push it through if you can. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so you're not taking the hot, you don't have that yep. uh, hot uh, engine going into the cold water and the sort of shock uh, of that. But when you're crossing 20 rivers in a day, like <laughs> yeah. in Pakistan, that becomes that becomes a little bit impractical. Yeah, yeah, you don't have that luxury. Now, I've done the uh, banjo fitting on the final drive, and, uh, you know, I've got creeks, uh, water crossings at my house um, that I have to ford uh, sometimes, but a lot higher than, uh, than I'd like to. Uh, so, yeah, that was one of the first things I did when I got that GS, uh, was that banjo fitting and, uh, and a vent hose. So, and... and yeah, and I've nope. done I've done the same thing with the uh, speedometer cable. Water still can get in there. I mean, I packed it full, like you say, zip tied it, um, put a sh- some shrink wrap on it, and if you're going through deep water, it will still get in there. I think. I mean, I, that being said, uh, it does give me a good reason to make sure the transmission uh, oil is always in good shape. I mean, I probably change it two or three times a year. So, yeah. Um- they say you. People tell me you shouldn't use GL5 because of the brass, the bronze bushings in there. And if you look at the spec, the BMW recommend GL5, and I do a lot of gearboxes, and I don't know if it makes much difference. But my friend Todd Rasmussen put me onto some oil the other day. He said got synchromesh oil from Valvoline synchromesh oil, and I started putting that in. Um, I don't know, mate, but. Uh, yeah, a gearbox is a pretty robust, you know. I've opened gearboxes that had quite a bit of water in them and uh, they didn't do very much harm. It's a rugged it's a rugged bike. The the Slash 5 with that four-speed box, that's a great box, mate. I, I agree. You know, that I was talking with uh, a fellow called um, Andy Kahora uh, who runs a shop uh, in the Northeast, um, yeah. Barrington Motorworks, and he does... He he helped me out one day with a with a rod for a for a R sixty. He helped me out. He's very kind. Yeah, yeah. And we had that discussion uh, about the 
slash five gearbox, the four speed versus the later five speed. And my take on it was really more anecdotal than anything. Uh, I, I'm not a, a, a wrencher uh, by trade, at least on a, on a tra- as far as transmissions go. But I always seem to notice that uh, four-speed gearbox on the Slash 5 I had. Nary a problem with that thing. I really liked uh, the four-speed. Uh, third gear was really robust in there. You could, you know, it had a wide range of use- usability from, from my perspective. And he said, when I spoke with Andy about it, he said, you know, the Slash 5 gearbox was really just a carryover of what was on the Slash 2 uh, less complicated, less moving parts, and a lot easier in his mind to service than a slash uh, or than a, a five-speed gearbox. <laughs> One of the things he said was when he does a uh, when he does a, a five-speed and then goes back and does a four-speed gearbox, he's always thinking, "Well, gosh, I I had to have forgotten something because there just wasn't much to it." Yeah, and, and Clint Nostell, he's an elderly gentleman. Um, who used to have a, a, a BMW shop and he still tinkers with BMWs. He gave me a good hint the other day. He said the the input shaft bearing, the forward input shaft bearing on a slash five, he said, just change it for a roller. And I ordered bearings a couple of weeks ago and I ordered a roller for that. And I've got one on the bench now. And uh, I'm going to change that for a roller because when in, when they went to the five speed, they did put a roller bearing in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it just made sense, and I don't know why I didn't figure that out myself. And that was a good piece of advice he gave me the other day. So um, I'm going to do this one with a roller, and if if I'm happy with that, I'm just going to put rollers in them from now on. So but what what David? What's the benefit of the change there? Well, a roller's got more surface area. It's a stronger bearing. Um, you, you need a, a ball bearing will hold a shaft in place, but a ball bearing doesn't carry the load that a roller does. And um, so they did go to a roller on the on the input on the on the five speed. So he, he said not on the slash twos because there's not such a load on them. Mm. But um, we've got a conversion we're building here. It's like we're building a raft to get off the island and if we ever go traveling. <laughs> conversion and with a TR5 sidecar on it and I've put a four-speed box in it but I'm going to build another box with a roller bearing in and swap it over um, because I just think it'll be more robust with a thousand cc engine yeah yeah that's a good call that's a good call okay that's why I don't get anything finished mate because I think too much (laughs) That's funny. All right, David. So I know you said you don't advertise, uh, and, and I, I respect that. I respect your thought process and, and uh, how you think about that. But that being said, uh, folks are going to want to maybe know how to get in touch with you, maybe uh, find out about your event in May, or get in touch with you about doing uh, some repair work for their motorcycle. What's the best way to do that? Telephone, mate. Um, I'm computer literate, 100%. I don't even know how to use a cell phone. I'm speaking to you on a landline. Good. Telephone number. Or my wife, you can contact her. She has a Facebook page under the Barnsley Motorworks, and works is spelt with an E, unfortunately. And Or she's got a she's got an email address, barnsleymotorworks at currently.com. So yeah, they can get a message uh, to you, email via her. And, yeah. uh, and David, I'll put uh, your contact information 
uh, in the sort of about section of this program. So folks can go back there, uh, find your phone number and find a link uh, to the email address. So, well, look, David, uh, I really enjoyed visiting with you today. We got a chance to meet uh, in person at Todd Trumbor's event earlier this year. I'm glad we got to cross paths. And after visiting with you again today, I have to say, uh, I'm really impressed uh, with everything you've done, the life you've made for yourself, and the way you move through this world. Uh, keep up the good work. Yeah, we just all muddle through, mate. We just all do our best, don't we? Well, thanks for your courtesy, mate. It was nice to talk to you. All right, everybody, that's a wrap. What an interesting and insightful chat with David this week. I really admire how he's made his way through the world. We've got info on how to connect with David, purchase his book, and anything else in the description section of this program. Finally, be sure to put some eyes on the new webpage, airhead247.com, shirts, decals, parts, additional content, all of which we hope you'll find interesting and enjoyable. So until next time, so long, everyone. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.